2015, a slew of different-sized publishing companies, ranging from small shops with a handful of full-timers, all the way up to massive entities like the New York Times, MTV, and the Washington Post, began to shift company resources from writing and media that required a great deal of work, like long-form articles, audio, and scripted video, to shorter-form often less resource-intensive video projects of the kind that seemed to be doing quite well on social networks. This perception of what was doing well was reinforced by data coming out of the social media world, and this seeming desire for such content also led to a nearly wholesale pivot within social networks' algorithms to favor video content that often lasted seconds rather than minutes which in turn pushed more such videos into the timelines and feeds of users across essentially all social media ecosystems. The word was that this was the future, streaming, short-form video, and anyone who didn't get on board was going to be a fossil in very short order. Thus, the social networks tweaked their formulas, and the aforementioned publishers of various shapes and sizes all began salivating over the ad insertion potential, as it seemed like this was a genuine upending of the normal publishing order into a state that was more favorable for business models focusing on shorter videos, which in turn meant more ad insertion potential, which meant more exposure and clicks, which meant more revenue for everyone involved. That was the theory, at least. What happened as a consequence of this shift was many of these publications laid off huge swaths of their employees, which in some ways was another financial benefit of this pivot, as it meant fewer people that they had to pay to produce content with potentially higher ad revenues. And those employees that remained were typically tasked with focusing on quick twitch content, sometimes described as the video equivalent of junk food. Stuff that was short on any real nutritional value or worthwhile takeaways, and laden with the informational and even comedic equivalent of fast food. Lots of sugar and preservatives. Nothing of substance. Clickbait. By 2017, online-first media companies like Mashable and BuzzFeed had already pivoted toward this type of video content, and more traditional print media had started to do the same, beginning with Vanity Fair and The Washington Post and Sports Illustrated, and eventually spreading to Fox Sports and MTV News and Vice and Vox Media. And again, this pivot usually meant mass layoffs amongst the staff of these companies, and those relatively few employees who survived the culling were tasked with what was euphemistically called social video production, a term that gestured at another substantial change to the content delivery state of affairs at this moment in time. Whereas previously, content creation-oriented companies were using social media primarily to attract attention and pull readers and listeners and viewers back to their main websites and publications that they controlled, this new model incentivized them to instead build out their social presence and push people there. 
That's where the ad revenue was going to be generated after all. And in some cases, they even used their own websites as mere web portals where all of the links directed people toward their Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat pages and profiles rather than the other way around. Ultimately, though, much of this gold rush-like enthusiasm was predicated on false numbers. In 2016, Facebook admitted it had artificially inflated its video viewing numbers to its advertisers by between 60 and 80 percent. A class action lawsuit was filed against Facebook for their profitable inflation of their metrics. And when the text of that lawsuit was unsealed and made public, we learned that Facebook knew they were inflating their video viewing numbers by between 150 and 900 percent, and then intentionally waited for over a year to fix these numbers that they knew were wrong in order to obfuscate their inflation and benefit from the resulting ad buys and media pivoting by all of these companies. By some estimations, then, this whole wave of pivots to video and layoffs were the consequence of bad numbers. In some cases, numbers that were intentionally flogged by social media entities that wanted more media companies to shift their content over to their social platforms, rather than using their social platforms to direct people back to their own websites places that these social networks would not be able to sell ads or make money off of all of these users. The numbers were impressive enough, though, seemingly at least, that folks on all sides of this wave saw it as an opportunity and a demographic shift that they couldn't afford to miss out on, which led to a mass migration of content onto Facebook and Twitter and all the rest of them. A pivot toward shorter-form video, which cannibalized resources for longer-form written and audio and video content for years. And a resultant brain drain in the publishing industry, as they'd fired all their long-form writers and other content creators while thirsting after the supposed, but ultimately illusory, ad revenue they thought they'd be able to glean by shifting focus in this way. Pivot to video has since become something of a euphemism for the death of certain aspects of an industry, or a big lie that is on its face both transparently stupid and predicated on false hopes of self-enrichment. It's also sometimes used as shorthand for death due to its widespread usage on Twitter by journalists and other writers who were fired all within a relatively short period of time during this pivot. Blogger Anil Dash captured this sentiment when he tweeted, quote, Horse broke its leg, so we had to take it out back and help it pivot to video, end quote. What I'd like to talk about today is another pivot that seems to be happening across multiple networks and other business entities at the end of 2021, and which could either represent a new stage in how we engage with online content, especially how we shop online, or could represent another Potemkin village media and sales model predicated on these platforms and media entities' understandable desire to not be left behind. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to unspool today comes from Digiday, and it's entitled, 
Amid video growing pains, Amazon Live struggles to attract publishers. This piece is about a relatively new effort by Amazon called Amazon Live, which is a mainstream permutation of something that's been popular in China and a few other countries for several years now, and which already exists on some other more niche platforms, but which is now, for a variety of reasons, being pitched as the next big thing by some large influential business entities like Amazon. And that newish something that's being pitched is usually called either live stream selling or live stream shopping, depending on whether you're running the platform and doing the streaming or visiting said platform and shopping. The concept is fairly simple and will be familiar to anyone who's ever turned on a traditional broadcast television late at night and watched an infomercial. A person, or sometimes more than one person, is on screen. They're engaging with a product or products, and those products are available for sale through the video or the platform through which the video is streamed. That's it. That's the concept. It's like QVC here in the U.S. where people, usually fairly gregarious, appealing people, tell you about things you can buy at length and show these things on video, and those things then benefit from a sort of halo effect which imbues them with additional credibility and or desire ability. This is not really a new concept then, but a confluence of trends and technologies has helped generate a somewhat new version of a traditional model and has made some of what goes into this type of presentation more intuitive and addictive. For instance, the concept of influencers, which has evolved over the years as people have become famous or mini-famous by accumulating followers on social networks, has become so mainstream that seeing not celebrity but influential people on these live stream videos isn't weird. It's actually at times exactly what people want to see. Normal people who happen to be good on screen, telling the folks on the other end of these videos what to buy. The concept of live streaming video on the internet, too, has evolved in recent years, in part because of platforms like Twitch, which was acquired by Amazon in mid-2014, and which have mainstreamed the watching of people playing video games and engaging in other such normalish activities while in front of an online audience on camera. Thus, the infrastructure and concept of streaming is a lot more mainstream these days, but so too are the norms and behaviors associated with it. A random person talking at a camera and engaging with you, the viewer of the live stream, isn't as weird as it may have been back in the pre-Twitch years. And even just a few years ago, when Twitch existed, but copycats, ranging from small startups to giants like YouTube and Instagram, hadn't yet emerged to compete with Twitch for their slowly burgeoning audience. The technology has also iterated to a point where these live streams, for folks with decent internet connections at least, are both intuitive and convenient. The distinction between viewing a photo and watching someone live stream video on the internet is minor at this point, and you don't tend to have the buffering issues that plagued online video back in its early days or the low-quality content that tended to be overwhelming even a handful of years ago. Online video is a mature medium. It's easy to deliver 
and consume, and the entities that are delivering this permutation of online video have made it simple to watch someone on screen engage with that person through a chat box perched alongside the video, and usually to give them likes and hearts and send them monetary tips or other sorts of feedback. Engagement that can make these streams addictive and interactive and social rather than just one-way, one-to-many broadcasts. The seemingly minor but actually quite substantial innovation that has allowed this new type of online video content to flourish in some parts of the world is the interconnectivity between live stream video content all those elements that make the live streams interactive and social, and the ability to purchase the things that you see on screen. This is a technology that has existed in various forms for a long time, but it's never really been intuitive and frictionless enough to go mainstream. It's always been a bit of a niche experimental thing, and often presented in a limited way as a consequence. People didn't know how to use it and didn't expect it, and the process of using it was often quite cumbersome and hokey. Today, though, it's possible to see someone appealing and entertaining live streaming a video to be able to engage with that person and all the other people, potentially thousands of other people, watching the stream at the same time, and to see that person on that video hold up a branded bobblehead, or play a video game, or toss around a stuffed animal, and to click a button and immediately have that item in your online shopping cart delivered to your inbox, or already on its way to your front porch. All the modern conveniences of shopping online, then, have been incorporated into these live streams, and the combination of those elements have led, in some cases, to absolutely massive sales of certain products on certain platforms sold by certain influencers. This technology, or this use of it, rather, is more mature in China, where the Chinese version of TikTok, Douyin, has begun to compete in a serious way with the country's largest online marketplace, often called China's Amazon, Alibaba, which itself originally introduced livestream shopping to the country back in 2016. Livestream sales in China have doubled in 2021, reaching about $313 billion, while traditional online sales have only increased by 15% over the same period. Skincare products, cosmetics, and women's fashion are especially popular on these livestream services, though sales on budget items are also quite popular in China, as many families and students keep live streams running throughout the day in order to catch promotions on items that they would otherwise buy from grocery stores or more traditional online marketplace platforms like Alibaba. And Alibaba, fresh off a round of anti-monopoly sanctions from the Chinese government and facing issues related to a possible breakup of some of its services hasn't seen very promising growth in the live stream shopping space in 2021, and its domination of live stream sales has decreased from about 62% of the entire Chinese market in 2020 to 48% of the market the first half of 2021. That said, they still saw single-digit growth 
in this space this year, and they're reportedly in the process of training new influencers meant to help them perk those numbers back up and fend off the barbarians at the gate. Those barbarians, in this case, are the aforementioned Doyen and another social video platform owned by the same company called Kwaisho, which have 600 million and 320 million people scrolling through their videos each day, respectively, and which only sell to a small number of those total users, but because of their scale, still make pretty good money from their live streaming sales efforts. Live stream shopping on these two entities grew by a combined 86% in the third quarter of 2021. So though they are still smaller than Alibaba in this regard, they're growing a lot faster and not facing the same regulatory headwinds as their traditional online marketplace competition. So at the moment, after about five years of this approach, to online sales being mainstream in China, the big Amazon-like entity, Alibaba, is still dominating, but also flagging a bit because of government-related variables and because people are spending more time on social media apps, like their version of TikTok, which is now providing a similar buy-through livestream video service in their apps and slowly accumulating more prestige and more of the most popular live stream sales influencers as a consequence. In the US and many other parts of the world right now, this is still a new thing. Again, it's been around for a bit, but a confluence of factors has held it back, and new factors are now conspiring to make it a real mainstream thing here further west as well. That Digiday piece is about Amazon's version of this concept called Amazon Live, which you may have seen if you've visited Amazon's website recently, especially if you checked out any of their Black Friday or Cyber Monday holiday season deals. They've been running live streams across the top of their deals section, along with a carousel of items that they're featuring in these videos. Amazon was hoping that this favored placement on their site would encourage people to engage with these videos and in turn popularize this format in the US. And that would help them leverage some of what they've learned from and some of the infrastructure that they use for their Twitch streaming platform. But it would seem that even with all those advantages and even after quietly running this live streaming service in the relative background for the better part of two years, it hasn't really become a thing yet. Part of the issue, according to this piece, is that Amazon hasn't done a very good job of building relationships with content creators or brands. Just as Facebook and other social networks aimed to pull creators of things onto their platforms with the promise of money to be made back in the pivot to video era, so too is Amazon hoping to get product makers and content creators invested in Amazon Live, bringing some of their audience but also some of their marketing dollars to the platform. Creators and brands seem to be hesitant to invest in Amazon's platform, though, and this is reportedly in part because they've been burned before and they remember that pivot to video all too clearly but also because Amazon has increasingly tied prime positions on their marketplace to spendy ad buys. Amazon sells ad placement to companies wanting to sell stuff on their platform. 
and they're taking a similar approach with their live streaming service, which seems like just one more expense to these companies that are already operating with so many unknowns and greater uncertainty during a global pandemic and all of the issues stemming from that pandemic. Amazon has also been encouraging these brands to invest in marketing outside of Amazon to pull people to Amazon Live and the events that the brands host there, which basically means these companies would be spending their money to send people to Amazon, which is pretty obviously in Amazon's interest, but not as obviously in the interest of these brands. Amazon has also, apparently, left most of these content creators and product makers without any real guidance as to how they might best leverage this platform. They've made space available and given them the parameters of how it can be used, but no sense of how to use it well. And since this is a space that's been mostly dominated, in the U.S. at least, by gamers and people operating in adult industries up until this point, most of these companies don't have a sense of how to utilize live streams to their full potential. Some live stream sellers, the influencers on video selling stuff, have seen pretty good returns over the course of the pandemic, as more people have spent more time in front of their devices. Engaging with videos of people on such streams can seem downright welcoming and friendly compared to other approaches to selling stuff. That said, Amazon Live is being seen by many as just an extension of their larger affiliate program, where people are paid a small cut of sales that they bring to the platform, and thus isn't being taken as seriously as its own thing worthy of substantial investment of time and resources. And that's true for many influencers, but also for the brands that would make their products available to those influencers to sell via this medium. It's not clear that the outcomes would be worth the investment, for anyone but Amazon, that is. Looking into a possible future, predicted by what's happening in China right now, we could see Amazon's attempts in this space eventually pay off. And then in several years, social media entities may move in to usurp Amazon's place at the top of the heap by offering similar services in a more compelling and more social, more entertaining package. Putting buyable goods with enthusiastic sellers where people spend their time already, rather than putting such sellers and goods in the equivalent of an online store, where people go to buy things but not to hang out all day. It may also be, however, that Amazon and other retailers fail to take a significant chunk of this sales channel and are instead bypassed by social networks, which themselves then take the crown and leapfrog these would-be incumbents, deviating from what we've seen in China, or perhaps just skipping a few steps and five years' worth of slow evolution in this space. TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and Twitter have all already implemented versions of this concept on their own platforms. And because, again, those are the sorts of places people actually hang out, there's a chance the numbers will make enough sense to eventually pull brands toward these entities to try out this service instead of opting to experiment with Amazon. This could all also be the next pivot to video. Influencers and platforms and brands all coming to the table, only to see their investments lead to few benefits. 
Everyone copycatting each other because they don't want to be left out of the next gold rush. But most of that invested money and time ultimately wasted. When the novelty of a snazzy, buzzy, potentially wonderful new medium wears off and shows itself to be a dud. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Lady Parts by Deborah Kopakin. This is a really devastating book in many ways, and elements of it remind me of another book I read, which I really enjoyed, called Invisible Women, which was likewise very eye-opening. But this one was a lot more visceral because it's narrative nonfiction, and it retells some of the adventures the author has had. A woman who wrote another book I really enjoyed called Shutter Babe, about her travels around the world as a photographer, including into some very dangerous areas. But in this case, she's navigating the American healthcare system and both explaining elements of female anatomy and showing just how ignorant many of us are, but also how ignorant the healthcare and scientific community in some cases are about some of what's going on in women compared to how much we know about men, a relative abundance but also just how difficult it is for somebody who isn't even doing terribly to get along within the American healthcare system, which does a few things decently well, but fails so many people in so many different ways. And the experiences that this author has had going through this healthcare system, even as a relatively successful author, it's just astounding. And I think it's representative of what a lot of other people have gone through as well. So it's not a feel-good book, but I do think it is a very illustrative book, both in terms of what we know and what we don't know about anatomy, especially women's anatomy, but also how that lack of information often informs and amplifies some of the issues that we have within the American healthcare system. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Lady Parts by Deborah Kopakin. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript of this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work, written and audio, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. No live stream shopping networks yet, though, unfortunately. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.